What up, bitches? Welcome to Bookworms. I'm your host, Alex. And I'm Joe. And this is the show where we read a book and then talk about that book. And this month, we are talking about one of my personal favorites by a local author. Local does, anyways. A book that... Local to most of you listeners, also. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, a book that uh, I really adore. It's a spin on a very old story. It's Bull by David Elliott. And what story is this retelling, Alex? It's a retelling of a very famous Greek myth, the myth of the Minotaur. Is it more or less famous than Hercules? Uh, Minotaur. Is there a Disney movie for it? Regrettably not. I'm surprised there's not. There's, there's, there should be a Disney spin on this one. Oh, it's it's kind of kind of bad. Yeah. Well, it depends on whose perspective, because most of the time the story is so told through the perspective of Theseus, and he just has a great time. But Theseus is, uh, he's always been second banana to Hercules, so he is definitely not more famous than Hercules. He's pr- not, probably not even Poseidon's best-known son at this point. I think Percy Jackson is. That got me a dirty look from our audience. <laughs> Joe's wife. Our only listener who's not a bot. Yeah, I'm not a bot. I just downloaded it a bunch of times <laughs> to get our numbers up. So yeah, let's get into it. So let's learn a little bit more about the author. Alex, you said you've met him? I have met him. You, I met him did, back did, did in... Did you fangirl him? A little bit. So uh, I worked in an elementary school, and we were looking to book an author visit. And so he lives uh, nearby where we live. So reached out to him. He's a uh, David Elliott is an author of a bunch of picture books. This book, Bull, is more geared towards older teens. However, he has a large amount of children's fiction to go with as well. So he booked him, and uh, he gave us a little scare because you know it's like it's a big parent night. You know the parents come, they see their kids work. We have an author visit. There's pizza. It's a good time. Uh, but he's like running super duper late. And then, like, no notice given whatsoever. He's just not showing up. And eventually he, like, shows up with, like, five minutes to spare before he's supposed to go on and talk to everybody. And he says that this book had just... He was, like, late because he was getting off the phone with, like, a uh, company that wanted to option this book for a movie. So that was pretty cool. Is it going to become a movie? I don't know. That was uh, back in 2018, so... So it's still uh, possible because this stuff takes a long time to go through... It's only yeah, it's only been five Just like years, this book. which in Hollywood time is is uh, not very long at all. But he in did Ho- in Hollywood time. That's either a hundred years or five minutes. Right before he went on, though, I told tell him he had some important paperwork to sign, and then I pulled out my copy of Bull and gave it to him to sign for me, which he wrote to Alex. One way out of the labyrinth is the library, as you well know. Keep up your important work, David Elliot. What a nice guy. Very sweet. Yeah, but um, otherwise, he's I've kind of kept up with some of his work. He's uh, very well-versed <laughs> in, a, in this style of writing, which is writing novels in verse. I, I did read something that this was the first one where he really got into it, though. Yep. Uh, so he wrote this one. Uh, he has another book about Joan of Arc, which is told in this style. And uh, he just came out with one, I think, last year or the year before, uh, which is a retelling of the Seven Ravens folktale, which was pretty good. This book, though, is, out of everything I've read, this has got to be his crowning achievement. This is a fantastic story uh, told in a very unique way. Yeah, so you said it's in verse. 
And it's also from a different perspective than what we normally hear the story in, as Alex kind of alluded to earlier. Yeah, so normally the story of Theseus and the Minotaur, if you're familiar with it, it's the story of how Theseus rose from being a peasant to a king and slaying the evil Minotaur on the island of Crete is kind of a stepping stone on his way to becoming king of Athens. Uh, this the story, creator of democracy. Yeah, essentially, yeah, he's, he's not all bad. Uh, but he, uh, like, you know, it's a, it's a very epic story. It's a classic hero's journey story that you will see in Greek mythology. This story, however, changes perspective, and we see the story through the eyes of several characters. Primarily, we hear from the Minotaur Asterion, and we hear from the god Poseidon, among other characters as well. Name them all, Alex. Come on, you can do it. You, well, you, I, I saw you practicing earlier. <laughs> well, luckily, like many a Greek tragedy, Eliot includes a cast of characters in the front of the book, so we can learn who each person is. So we've got our god Poseidon, we've got the king of Crete, Minos, we have the royal engineer, Daedalus, we have Minos's wife, Pasiphae. We have the bull, Asterion. We have Ariadne, who's the daughter of Minos and Pasiphae. And we have Theseus. As we said, he's the heir to the throne of Athens. He's the future father of, de of democracy. And all-around badass. Yeah, it's pretty cool. He's always my favorite hero. This story does not portray him too kindly, though. No, oh, I mean, I think it's fine as long as you like dumb jocks. So, yes, the story opens up with... Poseidon, with the opening lines of "What a bitches," what a bitches. which, you know, in two words, does a great job just summarizing who this person is as a character. And this is definitely written for a modern audience in mind. This is not designed to be written like how it originally was. Yeah, so Poseidon he talks using a lot of modern slang. He almost exists out of time. It's kind of like in a uh, weird out of out of nowhere tangent but uh like aladdin with the genie like he's supposed to be in this ancient you know african kingdom and he keeps like pretending to be like jack nicholson and making a lot of modern pop culture references poseidon does that too in this story and it, it works really well it makes it much more relatable and fun when he's just acting like a uh, a modern just total a-hole the entire time yeah, and it also helps filling in a lot of the backstory that the other characters aren't able to provide with the uh, way the narrative is set up. So we get to learn about Theseus's history, uh, what's his name, the engineer's history and future, because he's another one that's kind of a famous, or his son is super famous. Yeah, Daedalus is a huge name in Greek mythology. He's the royal architect. So he's famous for designing the labyrinth that the Minotaur lives in. And he's also famous for his son, Icarus. He's also famous for creating the wooden bull that got the Minotaur created. Yeah, yeah, he's a busy guy. They, they keep him busy over there in, in the island of Crete. But I, I did want to read just our first whole page of Poseidon because it summarizes basically not, everything that's about not to happen. Not, let's not have this like night watch where I was quoting half the book, Alex. You cannot quote half the book here. Okay. Because oh. we'd be here, well, we'll read the whole book in about an hour. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's a very short book. I'll only do two-thirds. What a bitches. Am I right or am I right? 
that bum Minos deserved what he got. I mean, I may be a god, but I'm not unreasonable. When I am, so what? Like I said, I'm a god. Reason's got nothing to do with it. And so just in that short amount of time, we've got some foreshadowing about how this is all going to be put in place just to punish one guy who we learn is Minos, the king, or he wants to be the ruler of the island of Crete. And Poseidon, he's just like, yeah, sure, why not? This will be fun. And yeah, he gives... So he, he creates a bull to be sacrificed in his name. And, of course, you know, be, being a god that th they need that for whatever reason for their own egos. And, of course, then Minos does not sacrifice said bull, but finds another lesser bull to sacrifice. Yes, Minos is portrayed as a total dunce who thinks really highly of himself so yes he betrays the god of the ocean because he likes the bull that the god gave him not a smart move when you live on an island in the middle of the ocean yeah. and kind of like we, we've learned with poseidon reason's got nothing to do with it he's really angry that he didn't get that bull back and he's going to hurt minos as much as he possibly can and that involves hurting his family. Yeah, starting with the wife, having her fall madly in love with the bull, and doing the nasty with said bull, yeah. creating a monster child with the bull. Mythology's not very pretty when you get into the nitty gritty. This is not a Disney uh, episode. What's that? Uh, what's that joke about the movie Hercules? Like the most historically inaccurate thing they ever did was portray Zeus as a loving father. So Poseidon's not much different. So yes, he puts a spell on Pasiphae to make her, uh, who's Minos's wife, uh, to make her want to have intimate relations with the bull. She enlists their royal architect Daedalus to build a fake bull that she can crawl into, so that the real bull can do its stuff. And uh, it works really well. She gets pregnant. Messed her up in the head long term, as we find out. And this the way, uh, as characters start to go into madness, the way that they are portrayed in their poetry changes in the story. The pages get darker, and the print turns from black to white, and it gets very random and hectic. Yeah, so yeah, David Elliott uses... A few different kind of like moods of delivery to make different points. And, and each uh, character has their own different type of poetry that represents kind of who they are. And, yeah, and, yeah. And, and we, in, the, uh, in the back of the book, he explains, you know, which, which forms of poetry he used for each of these characters. Yeah, so like uh, we see a lot of Poseidon, and um, he talks about how it's, there's no like one form about him the way he speaks in the book like it's uh most of the time it's cut he speaks in couplets a uh, certain number of syllables but it can change at any time it's very random uh, and that's just to help carry across that message that this is a unpredictable person that we're dealing with who just basically can do whatever the hell he wants yeah we're passive uh speaks in syllabic lines but as she becomes more on a hinge the you know, stream of consciousness just goes haywire and yeah yeah the words start to separate the punctuation disappears and it becomes very rambly very 
uh, stream of conscious style, and then like her last, the last time she speaks, her words are word vomited all over the page, no particular style or anything. It's just a bunch of random words on a page, kind of scattered all about. But yes, there is a half boy, half bull creature roaming around the castle now. Yeah, and we get his early life in this story, where in the normal story we get him at birth, and then when he's killing people in the yeah, well, right a, before he goes into the labyrinth. Yeah, we get that he's a angry rage monster in a labyrinth that is a tool of the king to punish people. But yeah, the first time we see Asterion, he's only three years old, and he's reciting a nursery rhyme that his mother reads to him, which is interesting because his mother is the only person who loves this thing. Uh, everyone else, they either steer clear of it, or they are only interacting with the bull child because they've been ordered to by by their uh, monarchy. But yeah, Asterion, uh, we see him, and he's just reciting a little nursery rhyme. Mommy has a little calf, little calf, little calf. Mommy has a little calf. His nose is black as tar. She calls her calf Asterion, Asterion, Asterion. That's my name, Asterion. I'm ruler of the stars. And that's a big thing with uh, Asterion. The, that name like roughly translates to something to do with stars. I forget exactly what it means. But was uh, in the original... Uh, myth was did he ever actually have a name or is this something that david elliott just came up with uh, alex on the fly looking up on his phone nothing says professional podcaster like yeah, alex obviously did not I, do his homework this is a quick google search there's so much cool stuff uh, it's mostly just referred to as a minotaur but uh it's interesting that he's given a name to about that has to do with stars and then his fate is to be locked away in an underground labyrinth. In total dark. Yeah, in, in darkness. He dies in darkness. Spoilers, he dies at the end. I'll leave it to us to spoil the book within the first ten minutes. Good thing you read yeah. it already. Yeah, ten minutes and just a couple thousand years. So yeah, we get Asterion as he's growing up, and his life is slowly getting worse and worse as he realizes what a hideous beast he is and how he is so basically hated by everyone except for his mother and his half-sister yeah it's uh it's interesting because like we see him at three then we see him at nine and he ages a lot like humans do and so like at three he's kind of oblivious to a lot of the opinions people have of him and he's just it's like oh i'm i'm special i'm great this is nice i'm ruler of the stars and then he gets nine years old you know third fourth grade age child and he's starting to realize like these things are different and that's not necessarily a good thing and these people don't actually like me and he's starting to become aware of the the feelings that people have for him and that he's been kind of designated this freak this monster that everyone's afraid of then we get into when he's 12 and he's a tween and he's starting to kind of get into more of his uh definitely falling more into himself he's at his emo stage yeah yeah his uh age 12 page is literally just uh what i hate a list of things like what i hate mirrors hats the looks the king light what i love the sea, the sky, my books, 
the queen, knight. So it's very short, but it, it's enough to get that point across. Like this guy doesn't like himself so, too much, and then you know he gets into his teenage years, and he doesn't get much farther beyond that. Yeah, so let's talk about his half sister because as his mom goes into madness, she becomes less and less part of his life, and she was basically the only one that was talking to him. But as soon as she kind of falls off the sanity wagon, the uh, sister kind of steps in and takes the motherly role up. Yeah, I'd say it's different, though. I don't... I read it, like, she says she loves Asterion, but I never really got that impression, even when, even before she betrays him in the end. Like, she didn't have that same kind of love. Her, her like, favoritism of him seemed to stem more from her hatred of her parents, because she hates, especially her father. Uh, she also doesn't like her mother. I kind of read it as... The, the hatred of her parents, but like a kindred, kindled soul, uh, where, where they were both, she felt different even though she was the lovely, beautiful daughter. She felt like Asterion looked, that she was just different. And so she, you know, it, it was that sisterly, brotherly, you know, bonding, but also just like, hey, we're both different and we both want to get out of here. You know, we, we have that common cause. Yeah, it's definitely more of a sibling thing, and like, they kind of like promise each other, they give each other hope for a, a better future, because none, neither of them are happy where they are. I guess I got the, the, the motherly thing, with, especially when she's talking to the Minotaur after he's been put in the labyrinth, and she's just talking to him through that little hole, uh, trying to keep him from going completely insane, and just making all these promises is just any day now, any day now. It's just, the plan is coming together any day now. Yeah, but she's lying to him, isn't she? I don't think she's meaning to lie to him, though. I think that's just, she she wants, like, the, the original, I guess what you call a lie is, they're going to escape off the island, they're going to hop on the ship that her brother returns home on, but then her brother, their brother gets killed in Athens, and it alters the plans. I, you know, it doesn't really, you know, they, they live on an island, there's got to be, hundreds of ships going in and out every day doesn't explain why they couldn't take on any ship but she decides we're going to go on this ship as soon as my brother gets here and everyone's distracted by his glory coming yeah. in winning the games at athens and then yeah. her brother andragios dies under mysterious circumstances poseidon initially says it was him who like altered the spear so that it strikes him through his tent but um that's not the case. And his death is what triggers the labyrinth to get built in the first place. Yeah, and our favorite builder builds it up in the original myth. He's supposed to be killed in it, but he barely escapes. And he tells uh, the sister how you know one can escape out of there, which is a fairly simple method of tie a piece of string to the door and to yourself and walk and then follow it back. <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of like Doi. Um, yeah, but Ariadne makes sure there's like a little aperture in the labyrinth so she can still talk to Asterion and still give him hope. But af really after Andragios dies, she doesn't really have a plan. And she's just kind of giving lip service to try and help Asterion keep his sanity. Because once he gets put in the labyrinth, oh boy, he starts to lose it pretty quick. I mean, that's what happens with isolation with most people is as soon as you're completely cut off, and again, you know, this is places, and he's in almost total darkness. 
total quiet, completely isolated. You know, you're you're bound to go insane, and he was already headed on that path anyways. Yeah, yeah, because the uh, the visual cue that the book gives that he's falling into mindless rage is, as you said, the darkening of his pages. So it gets progr- his uh, every time he's a perspective character, his pages get progressively darker throughout the story until they're pitch black. And uh, when by the time he's in the labyrinth, he's got black pages and white text, and his words are starting to kind of take on a more free-form style than what he had previously exhibited. Kind of like his mother. It's very much so. Yeah, so what's her face? The the sister there, she doesn't have a plan, doesn't have a plan. All of a sudden, this uh, boy wonder gets on everyone's radar as Theseus works his way to Athens to claim his rightful place as king of Athens. And then he finds out that hey, there's this thing where all the noble-born every few years, it was either every seven years or every year, it never really goes on about it. It was a payment for Andragius' yeah. death. The uh, nation of Athens had to send seven, four, boys, seven, yeah, seven girls. boys and seven girls to be sacrificed. And uh, Minos was going to use the Minotaur to be their, uh, be the person who did them in. And it doesn't really go into it, but Asterion, in the original myth, was already killing people beforehand, and he had done it at least a few times in the labyrinth before Theseus came along. But so this yeah, this book, one this one shortens the time frame a little bit, so it's like yeah. it reads like it's the first time this has happened, and Theseus is like he's all on board to go there and prove his mettle and slay the monster, where he seduces the sister rather uh, easily. Yeah, it's said that. Again, uh, Poseidon, he says that he put a spell on her to make her fall in love with, or he got Cupid to put a spell on her to make her fall in love with Theseus at first sight. Uh, he, he retracts that later on, but uh, he basically prom- gives her a bunch of empty promises, says, oh yeah, I'll get your brother out of there, when he had no intention of doing that. He just was trying to get in bed with her. Get in bed and find out how to get out of there and kill the, the bull. Yeah, and he uh, finds out about the the twine trick, and he goes in there. Yeah, and she gives she gives him the sword that kills her own half brother, because he needs to protect himself from the giant rats. Those uh, damn giant rats from Princess Bride strike again. Yeah, and Theseus re- only has two pages. Yeah, but... it's it's really not focused on him, and they do yeah. really make him look like the asshole. Yeah, because like he's he's just a quick little thing here. Like the first thing we see, he's just he's talking about Ariadne, and he's just like, like Ariadne, what a rack! I knew I'd get her in the sack. As for her bro, she won't outlive me. No sweat and time, they all forgive me. Well, yeah, he's kind, not wrong. Yeah, kind of setting up the whole thing of the the story changes to make him look like the hero in it instead of just some jerk off that turning around killing people for the name of uh, himself. And then we get. Asterion, and he's waiting for Ariadne to come get him, and then he hears Theseus mocking him, and he realizes he's been betrayed by the last person who ever loved him, and he kind of just gives into that rage, and they fight, and uh, it doesn't end well for him. No, I mean, you know, sword versus head. Usually sword wins. I mean, even if your (laughs) head has giant horns on it, usually the swords are going to win. Especially when neither can really see what's going on, and he's just bellowing in rage, kind of yeah. giving away his position. 
and they uh they give us his dying words which just basically him just lamenting all the betrayal and the loneliness that he feels and he just he's using that those feelings to describe what hell is like and he says hell is not for the pushing of a boulder up a mountainside to watch it roll back with a broken back and broken shoulder hell is the numbing of the soul hell is not an unfulfilled desire it's colder nor the thirst that takes its victim whole hell is the freezing scorn for who you are that transforms a faultless boy to minotaur yeah and that's basically the end of the book other than poseidon kind of giving a few more background details and retracting or adding to what his story is making him kind of an unreliable narrator yeah he does he does i guess three things real quick in the epilogue uh number one he just gives a summary of what happens next theseus takes ariadne on his ship dumps her on an island and then goes back and becomes king of athens so it didn't work out for ariadne very well um he also mentions daedalus tries to escape the island with his son that's another famous story of his son icarus flying too close to the sun on wings made of wax the wax melts he falls into the ocean and drowns and then uh poseidon also admits he did not do as much as he said he did. He basically put this charm spell on Pasiphae to get her to covet the bull. Uh, but beyond that, uh, he really didn't do a lot. Ariadne chose to betray the Min- uh, Asterion on his own and uh, all the all the other stuff he did. He yeah, just basically kinda... just letting humans be humans, he yeah. says. Yeah, I got it right here. He says... Uh, it was just me counting on you to do the things you mortals do. Ridicule, follow orders, stay passive, and betray. What a pity. It could have gone another way. Even so though we almost, all know that it really yeah, couldn't yeah. have, he wouldn't have allowed it. Well, he says he didn't actually like put the spirit, he didn't kill Andragios, he didn't kill, or he didn't put the spell on Ariadne. He just kind of relied on it, but I have a feeling if he's trying to punish this guy, he, if humans had tried to exhibit a different behavior he probably would have stepped in at some point but yeah you know, just see uh he kind of like mocks himself a little bit for almost showing an emotion for this whole story and then he heads back to the sea with a uh, tata bitches yeah so that's the book it's real short under 200 pages a lot of pages are single word on them yeah. uh and yeah, talking about inverse. form that's a I'm talking about just like the artistic form he takes that's a great like sometimes you throw a word in italics or give it its own paragraph like if he had a point he was trying to make he gave each word its own page yeah like i remember trying to get to page 100 i'm like oh i'm almost there i got 10 pages to go five words later oh i only got five pages (laughs) to go (laughs) yeah it's like 95 like i'm almost there how close like almost to page 100 and then it's like that's the way the cookie crumbles like okay i don't know if that had to be <laughs> a word per page, but yeah, still pretty good. Yeah. So conclusions, Alex. Yeah, obviously, you still love this book. Um. Yeah, I think I gave it five stars after my first review, and I maintain that. Uh, after my second read through, uh, I gave it four stars. It's definitely interesting and different and funny. Very good. Uh, not quite five star status. How dare you? I know. Hey, hey, you gotta. You gotta be honest with these things. This isn't like best book I've ever read kind of kind of story here. Yeah, it's up there for me. My wife really likes it too. 
as she's uh, glaring at him right now. Uh, we'll get into some of the questions I have for the end of each episode. Uh, how do you think the formatting affects this book uh, and you know, writing in a verse uh, being geared towards a younger audience? Uh, I think it's modernized approach is definitely its biggest strength for appealing to that audience. Greek mythology just in general, it sounds dry, but it's filled with just really awful, awful things that are a lot of fun to read about. And teenagers eat that stuff up. Yeah. Um, I think this is presented in a way. It's a quick read. Uh, it's entertaining. It, it has a lot of different perspectives that you normally wouldn't get from reading the old old stories. Um, so I think the the prose or yeah the verse forms excuse me the verse forms are it's a good way to do it and it's not overbearing it's not heavy handed it's it's got some messages it's trying to get across but overall it's just an entertaining read it's got you know comedy tragedy some action and it's it's pretty entertaining. Uh, does the story stay true to the original text or is the retelling for a modern audience change the story? So I think in his afterward, I'm not going to pull it up now, but he actually talks about that. The basic facts of the story are all there. And this is, again, an old story, uh, kind of like, like you encounter most of the time in, in mythology and folklore. The story changes depending on who's telling it. The main change is the fact that they, he portrays Asterion as a sympathetic character rather than just a brute monster. And he kind of changes some perspectives on these characters that we've known about for so long does that change the story in your mind it doesn't change what happens it changes your perspective however was the minotaur given due justice in the retelling uh him being fleshed out how do you think he differs from the original no i mean in the original he's just this uh angry rage monster in this one, he's a troubled character. Uh, can thoughtful. Him. He's very thoughtful, very introspective, and he's just crushed by loneliness. Actually, there's a uh, there's a, one of the reviews on the back of the book kind of sum it up pretty well. Why Asterion is like he is. Uh, it says it takes a god to make a boy into a beast, but it is we humans who turn him into a monster. So, like, it's this perspective that he's tortured, not by gods or by how he looks, but by the people around him who reject him. Uh, was this a good story for the retelling, or, or would you have liked to have seen David Elliott pick a different one? I mean, there was, I mean, this is kind of a well-known story. I get, you know, why he would pick it, because if he's trying to sell books, you know, pick one that people know, but would there have been, was this... You know, with this form, was this the best story you could have picked from? Um, it, I mean, this is personally one of my favorite stories from Greek mythology, is the story of Theseus and the Minotaur. Uh, I loved that story well before I read this book, and this book just kind of made me enjoy it even more. And, uh, I mean, he could have chosen other monsters. I mean, there's plenty of other monsters you can cast as sympathetic characters, like, I don't know, like the Cyclops, for example, from the Odyssey, or any of the you know there's sirens there's uh, any of the Hercules's yeah um, anything that Hercules fought <laughs> yeah, pretty much everything uh, so I think he did such a 
a, a good job with this story. I can't picture him not doing it. I, I think this is, you know, for a general audience, this story's just well known enough, but none of the details are known. So everyone knows about the Labyrinth and the Minotaur, but I don't think most people remember Theseus' name, if you know what I mean. Uh, it's like, oh, yeah, it's the guy that killed the Minotaur. So I, I, think, he, I think he's I, well known enough. I, well, I, I think for a general audience, I think yeah. book nerds like you or me know who he is because we're paying attention to this stuff. Yeah, because, I mean, he's arguably the second best-known Greek hero. I don't want to say that. I would say, uh, well... Achilles is probably the second best known. Yeah, that's possible. I like. I always or, thought of uh, uh, or the I other one. chose Theseus over Achilles. Yeah, but it's a, the the whole Odyssey and oh, like Odysseus. It, it, Odysseus or the you know the di- different characters from the Iliad. I mean, mm-hmm. said you know Hercules probably number one no matter you know who you ask. But yeah. so I, I think Theseus is kind of that you know forgotten one that he he's probably should be more famous because he did a lot more. He did a lot more crazy good adventures. Where these uh, other guys are more selfish in their their goals, and like getting into some like background of Greek myths, like there were like three stages of like talk about the hero's tale, early Greek stories. The heroes were the gods, and then second era is where Theseus come in, where and Hercules as well, where they're half god, and so they're starting to show those more human traits, and then it's the final like third stage like the heroes become fully human that's where we get our achilles and our odysseuses you can argue i guess top three it's probably going to be hercules number one and then you can argue theseus or achilles depending on what you prefer i i like my heroes to survive i got nothing to say <laughs> so, you know, me, me being a big fan of the irish mythology pretty much for them to become a hero they have to die at the end so (laughs) that's like a job requirement nothing but tragic heroes (laughs) uh what are your thoughts on theseus as a modern day hero uh does he break the mold of what we would consider heroes from like comic books uh is he more likable or more real than say some of these modern day heroes that we follow like superman or batman so like theseus has never been like portrayed as like this perfect hero uh, like this book leaves out the fact that he promised his father that he would return from Crete he said like you'll know I'm alive if we sail back under white sails but then he sails back under black sails and he becomes king of Athens because his father sees the black sails he's like my son has died and he hurls himself off a cliff and Theseus arrives and he becomes king so he makes a lot of mistakes he does a lot of really bad stuff throughout his journeys and like he He's portrayed a lot as very young in this story, and he's very young in all of his journeys, and he makes a lot of mistakes during those times. I kind of liken him to the TV show The Boys as one of the superheroes there, where especially with the, the way this book is written, where he just has a really good PR team, you know, writing after the fact he screws up that you know he was really this great guy, he had great intentions, he just you know he's kind of human like the rest of you so he does make mistakes and really he's just a arrogant douche yeah, you can get a lot of pr good pr when you're king of athens hey final question what other story would you like to see from david elliott any other myth retellings i'd like him to do another myth retelling um like i said i read his uh first retelling of joan of arc which i thought was really good 
uh, and then he also retold, uh, he's got another book called The Seventh Raven, uh, which is a retelling of a folk tale. I would like to see him carry on with this, uh, maybe tackle a myth from Norse mythology, because I, I love me some Norse mythology. Boo. They're already overdone. Let's, let's, let's do some Celtic mythology. Oh, Norse, Norse is where it's at. No, uh, I was actually versus, thinking maybe continue Paul with versus Ragnarok, baby. I was thinking uh, uh, continue with the Greek stuff and maybe do the the Argonauts. That would be kind of interesting. As again, one of those ones that everyone kind of heard about, but I don't think a lot of people actually know about anything yeah. about it. Honestly, I've heard that. I don't know if I've ever actually heard the whole story about the Argonauts. So that would be a fun one. Yeah. I'll uh, I'll reach out to him since he's my buddy now and he signed my book. Yeah, you guys are on first name basis. No, I'll call him Dave. So our thesis question for you, Alex, if you choose to t- accept it. Would be awkward if I didn't. So let's you, do it. No, you, no. <laughs> you can say no. That's okay. <laughs> Leave our uh, readers uh, pissed off that you refuse to answer yeah. my questions. My words are my own. Uh, so does the Minotaur being? I don't know if it would be per personified or personalized and given a backstory change your opinion of the story as a whole and you know does it change the possibility for a lot of these other myths you know with the potential of these bad you know supposed bad guys being fleshed out and more humanized and given more human problems of why they they went the way they did yeah i mean that's something we've seen lately with creating stories that give villains their backgrounds i don't know like maleficent or cruella do that um i would like to see more of these retellings with the the way david elliott's doing it because a lot of these older stories they, they tend to lack some character development and like the original minotaur story he's just a monster and you know minos is just this king and Theseus is a hero, so having these backgrounds makes the Minotaur's death much more impactful. It's more than just this is a huge stepping stone in Theseus's career. This is, you know, he is taking a life and he's hurting other people around him. That just kind of gives the story a little more, a little more oomph, a little more feels. Yeah, I mean, definitely creating you know, the Minotaur as an actual character, n- naming a Mysterion. It's definitely a very modern thing to do that we've been doing. People have been doing a lot in today's older, you know, retellings. A lot of people just don't accept the answer of the bad guy is the bad guy because he's bad. Yeah, they they don't want that. They want to know why. They they want the the why of the thing. They don't just want to take it at face value anymore. Just as they don't want to say the the good guy's good because he does good, they want to say well. You know, is he actually good, or is there something nefarious behind the scenes? And that's just the evolution of storytelling you want. I, I think it reflects just how our society is right now anyways, because there is a lot of mistrust with a lot of our original stories and the way people view pretty much anything right now. They, they want a, their, their version of a truth, and... They don't want to just accept someone else's answer of this is why it is the way it is. It's not enough to know just that that they're doing bad things. They want to know, why Why are you doing this bad thing? Yeah, and again, like you said, a lot of these old myths lack details. They, they are very basic 
stories. They've been stripped down to the bare essentials, which is yeah. part of the reason why they've survived yeah, thousands of years. There's videos. something to be said about good versus evil, and you know the hero triumphant, tri- the hero being triumphant over malevolent forces. Uh, it makes for entertaining read, but you also want to get those motivations, and you, it it often leaves you wanting more. So that's all I got. If you're more interested and want to dive deeper into the mythology of the Greeks in this story and Theseus in general, there's a good podcast out there called Myths and Legends done by Jason Weiser. Check it out. He's pretty thorough. He likes to put his own kind of spin in modern day arguments about the stories. He covers more than just Greek. He's covering myths and legends from all over the world. Check it out. Definitely learn a lot if you do. Do you think he'll advertise us since we just advertised him? <laughs> no. He can't see that far down. No. And you know, I mean, he's not exactly a, a a Joe Rogan either, but he's still, you know, skyscraper compared to where we are in the dirt, us worms, us bookworms. Yep. So, you have anything else, Alex? Are you good? Uh no, I'm good. Uh, fantastic book. I'll probably read it again someday. You'll probably read it again tonight. I'm going to drive home. Yeah, I might see, yeah, I'll be at a stoplight and just kind of read through the whole thing real quick. Yeah, it's, it's about a five-minute read. <laughs> took a little longer than that. It's like two hours if you're taking notes. Yeah, I, I did it in two sittings, so definitely one of the easier ones to prep for for our podcast. Yeah, thank God, because that la- last two were doozies. Yeah. Fuck you, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> uh so, if you would like to get a hold of us, we have an email, kendallbookworms at gmail.com. We have an Instagram, at kendallbookworms. Yep, send Joe some messages so he can tell me all about it. Yeah, yeah I, I do uh, control the social media side of things because Alex does not do any of that stuff. We have a website linked in the description below through Podbean who hosts our pod, little podcast here. Check us out. Give I us comments, likes, uh, wherever you can on the, the different podcast listeners. Get our ratings up. Uh, tell your friends about us. That's the best way to get us known and out there. You know, let's get our downloads and listens up. That would be awesome. Uh, What's our next book, Joe? Hold on. Hold on. I'm just so excited. Uh, I know. it's. I hope you've been enjoying our bonus episodes. If you would like to do some further reading, Alex has some books he's written. You can buy them through Amazon on the links below. What book is your favorite one that you've... Oh, yeah, check out what, uh, Paul Plimpton versus Ragnarok. His um, little plug for the Norse mythology. Yeah. yeah. Good, maybe maybe David Elliott can do a rewrite for you and make it a bestseller. Really, really turns the Norse myths on their head, if you ask me. <laughs> so if you're curious about our next book, it's going to be Stiff by Mary Roach. It is my pick. It is a non-fiction, so it's going to be a little bit different. It's a series of scientific achievements by uh, humans following cadavers. So check it out. It is hilarious and very informative. And I highly, if you like that book, I highly recommend pretty much all of her other books. You have Bonk, Spook, Grunt. To name a few, so yeah, very creative titles. Yeah, yeah. If she writes enough books, she might have a full sentence there. <laughs> yeah. 
So, I guess that's it. We'll see you next month, unless if we have another bonus episode for you. If you have any suggestions, be uh, gentle. Give, be gentle, and we will uh, take it under consideration. No, no more hopscotches, please. Yeah, no, no more hopscotches. We are not doing Finnegan's Wake. I had ori- originally I had a uh, an idea of doing like bonus episodes just every like couple months of really difficult to read books, and I thought Hopscotch could be the kickoff for that. But after reading Hopscotch, I have thoroughly changed my mind. And I have technically read Finnegan's Wake. Well, I can't say I understood anything other than the majority of the words written in it. I refuse to ever touch that book again. Yeah, that would be a very short podcast be like all right what's this book about i don't know do you know nope all we, right this is <laughs> we'd basically be reading wikipedia pages telling us what it's about <laughs> <laughs> even wikipedia doesn't know so that's it hope you enjoyed the show yeah until next time i'm alex and i'm joe and this has been bookworms <laughs>